podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Colour Signs' Ferrari takes Plan E to mean Plan Explode. Charles Leclerc takes victory from Max Verstappen. And Mick Schumacher, ooh, he is up and coming and found his groove. G'day, my name is James Baldwin and welcome to another episode of Lakeside Drive's F1 podcast. In this episode, we review the Austrian Grand Prix. And I'm joined by my friend and yours, it's Freya Brolsma. G'day, mate. Hello, how are we going? Oh, good. Uh, we're all very excited. <laughs> I feel like we overdid the excitement uh, in the opening. We're doing very well. Done. Doing very well because it is the uh, the second best race of the season in my mind, and it was immediately after the first best race season uh, for the season so far. Uh, Formula One really coming back into its own on some pretty brilliant tracks, Freya. Uh, we've had a bit of an interesting year in terms of who's been leading the championship, but uh, for a sprint weekend, this was a spicy meatball. A spicy meatball. Uh, yeah, it was, and it was a, so great to have an exciting race off the back of an exciting race as well, 100%. Um, so, no, I had a, we had a great time watching this. I was saying to you earlier it was strange because I was watching it with two Red Bull fans, and I get confused sometimes when when they cheer, I kind of turn around like, why are you cheering? Oh, that's right, you go for Red Bull. I forget that Red Bull as a team has actual fans. Um, so, but we had, we had good fun. But uh, no, let's go back. I, I really enjoyed it. Good race. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And look, if we, we cast our minds way back into the, the deep, dark depths of the pandemic, the opening double header that we had for the Austrian Grand Prix and the Styrian Grand Prix absolutely delivered. This is a track that uh, I think we all can agree on uh, across the podcast panel and probably for a lot of our fans too, Freya, that we all really enjoy. It's certainly, well, and look, normally, and and I said this uh, in a couple of interviews I did uh, previous to to this, uh, this race happening, is that, well, generally, Max Verstappen loves a home race for uh, Red Bull and Sergio Perez would be silly to not come in second. Um, Amazing results, really, that uh, the actual race, the sprint kind of felt like what Red Bull would then be performing for the race itself, for the race results itself. Phenomenal result for Ferrari to get out on top uh, and really for the first time in a long time, I think, that we haven't seen that Red Bull domination here at uh, the Red Bull ring, which is uh, which is good to see for the championship, Freya. It is. It's kept it all very interesting still. You know, we're well and truly into the season now and I think, like I said, after um, the sprint race, you know, it was exactly as we were sort of expecting it to pan out and kind of expected to be, expected the race today to be just a longer version of the same thing really. Basically us getting bored watching Max go around in circles, probably start, I don't know, singing a song to himself or something to keep himself entertained (laughs) and it just wasn't what happened, which was great. You know, really pleased that that's not what happened. But you know, I think it's just fantastic as a spectator that at this point in the season, it's still so interesting when it comes to both championships. And I think as far as the racetrack goes, I just love seeing fan-based tracks. And um, I think off the, you know, there's a lot of discussions at the moment about places like you know Vegas and Miami and all of that stuff. And it just doesn't feel like it's built for people who love the sport. And it, that's because it's not. So it's really refreshing to to come to uh, to Silverstone and then to Austria where you just suddenly feel like you're getting back to the essence of the sport and, and what we really love about it. 
And I think having a double header two in that same kind of vibe really helps rejuvenate the fan base as well across the world wanting to watch this brilliant sport. To me, the the title fight still isn't clear yet. We're now over halfway in the season, um, which is ridiculous. It feels like we've already had a full season to date. Uh, but it's going to be very interesting now where we go from here in terms of interesting races. Of course, we've got France next that we know that Campy's absolute favourite racetrack. He loves it. Hmm. He wants more races at the French Grand Prix if possible. Poor Ricard, his absolute favourite. And then we go to the Hungaro ring uh, before we have our summer break and then come back to Spa and it's then some amazing racetracks again. So I think you're right. It's absolutely brilliant comment and point about uh, building these new tracks in different locations, as good as it can be, uh, and potentially the, the vibe around the actual race itself, you just can't take away how good racing is on a track that is covered in orange smoke most of the time. And that is, <laughs> well, I mean, Zandvoort's pretty okay, but in my mind that's always going to be Austria. A hundred percent. I felt I felt really bad. We'll talk about the track um, a bit later as well. But um, I felt bad for the fans who were sitting at the back of some of those grandstands who wouldn't have been able to see a thing. Like they were just putting a weekend of orange smoke, um, and they would just hope that obviously that Max is out the front, and they're probably shocked when they found out that they weren't because they wouldn't actually have seen anything through the orange haze. So uh, that's that's an interesting one. Sometimes you kind of think about the people there, and obviously when you're watching on TV, it's such a different experience in terms of what you see in comparison to to being at the track in person, both of the fact that you can only see you know, the corner in front of you for the most part, but then not even that if you're in Austria. So an interesting experience for the people who were there, I'm sure. Well, let's get into our favourite part of the podcast. It's Tommy T's television broadcast review. Tommy T is a sick boy this week, Freya, so we will have to do our best at being the best presenter on the podcast, uh, channel our, our inner Tommy T, and think about the weekend. Uh, let's talk firstly of, of the national anthem, Freya. We had a metal version last year, which was beyond amazing. I feel like we got that out of our system last week with God Save the Queen or with an enormously amazing riff. And then a lot, and I didn't say this last episode, but... At the very end, he's like, yeah! <laughs> okay, good. Uh, as excited as you can get by a very short anthem, I suppose, is good. But uh, how did you see the anthem? Well, they've gone from one extreme to the other, like, you know, hard rock mm. through to ultimate classical. I think there was a comment in the Discord saying, <laughs> wait a second, is this I Will Survive that we're about to break into? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't, you couldn't actually distinguish that that was, in fact, the anthem um, at for a moment there is that they stuck into it. But... I don't know. Like we're, we're pretty critical of these of these things, but um, I just like seeing them doing something different. Um, and hey, they haven't tried to turn the flag into a dress, so I think they probably <laughs> did the right thing by just you know really letting the music speak for itself. So uh, I was I'm happy with that. It's very different to last week, so that's a bit fun. Um, and we had a flyover which was a refreshing we had uh, a flyover change so that's going to add some points i think uh, i mean i've never been sure quite of tommy's scoring system but i think that <laughs> when we actually have a flyover that might help what did you think yeah look to be honest i think i mean we're probably going to deduct points because of the lack of metal. I know that we've we've gone in a, a fairly decent direction, but I think when you set the standard and the expectation of how awesome it's going to be, 
uh, going the other direction is always quite difficult. But to have a flyover, and maybe this is this is the magic, the little the middle magic dust that Lewis Hamilton um, gave us in Azerbaijan last year uh, that we've we've managed to keep for for the good races. It starts with a flyover. It happened at Silverstone with the Red Arrows. It happened here with the Red Bull Air Force in Austria. Some classic aircraft too. And we all, we already know that. Red Bull is an absolute behemoth when it comes to a business, but the way that they do things is always that next level. Uh, so, of course, you're going to have a flyover. Of course, you're going to have a helicopter going upside down and and wingsuits and parachutists and all those sorts of amazing things. So I think whilst we're deducting points of the lack of metal, we're going to absolutely increase points, Freya, for the awesome flyover and the aerobatics displays over the course of the entire weekend. Um, who knows how Tommy rates any of this, to be perfectly honest. I feel like <laughs> we should try and get something uh, put in writing as to what he actually rates it for. But let's talk about the actual broadcast itself. Uh, one of my notes is that there was a, at least two two moments where the TV director played exactly the same thing over again. So I think it was an overtake of Max Verstappen and then it was still an overtake of Max Verstappen in the next frame rather than throwing to another camera. That was very bizarre. It happened twice and then the end of the shot, it rewinded a little bit. So that was very odd to see. But generally, it's very hard to mess up Red Bull Ring because it's such a picturesque location. It is. And there was a an incredible scene. Uh, I think it might have been actually after the race had finished as they were kind of doing panning shots and stuff. And they had you had the the orange mist with that huge ball and that was that's pretty dramatic like i think it, it is pretty impressive and like you said they they do this type of thing well um the from a tv director perspective and kind of general broadcast yeah there were, there were moments where it felt like they didn't know where to look almost mm. um you know and you had commentators saying oh there's a bit going on down there in 7th and 8th but we 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 probably won't see that uh, and they were almost kind of trying to hint towards what they wanted to be seeing in front of them. So, yeah, I think from the actual kind of spectator's perspective in watching the race, it wasn't a great experience. What did you think of the Sky presenters this weekend? We had Uncle Johnny back, which is never a good thing, uh, but it almost sounded like Martin Brundle was quite ill, uh, quite sick. Maybe he's got long COVID or something. Uh, he sounded a bit raspy and he wasn't his usual singing poetic self whilst yeah. doing lap by lap analysis. Well, it's just inhaling all of that orange smoke. It does things to your oh, lungs, yes, I think. It's just done, done a bit of damage maybe, but I thought that he did sound a bit off, didn't sound like himself. Um, but Johnny just, yeah, no, honestly, the, from a broadcasting perspective, when it comes to commentary coverage um, overall, wasn't a great experience in my view. I think the what saved it was the the Red Bull show, um, but you know we didn't always see what we wanted to see happening on track. Um, there was it was a bit pretty confusing with the with the commentators at, at some point. So oh, I'm going to give it a two out of ten for broadcast, but a seven out of ten for the show, the epic show, Red Bull show. Mm-hmm. Look, you've, you've gone Dual full scores. Tommy T. I was going to say, full <laughs> Tommy T absolutely makes no sense. We're going to have two scores. No. Two out of ten, seven out of ten. Why not? I'll back you in with that. Uh, <laughs> um, Tommy T, I hope you get better, mate. You're probably not going to listen to this episode because you're not really that much of a supporter of the show, are you? Um, but if you if you want Tommy T to get better, uh, I think just saying the word jeopardy every, every couple of hours just sends him all of the good vibes uh, that he <laughs> needs. Uh, let's let's move on, Freya, to talk about some news. There wasn't a lot of time to to sort of debrief. Was there between 
Silverstone to Austria. We got here and it was pretty much go because of a, a sprint race weekend. Um, there is only one thing to, that is worth mentioning uh, and I will mention it very quickly, but we'll talk about it in more depth in a, in a later episode when Campy is on and joining us. There is a, uh, there's been some tweaks to the financial regulations. Apparently there's an increase of 3.1% uh, for inflation for budget caps because of cost of goods and, and everything else, which is the boring part of it, I suppose. But the interesting part for me is the plank and skid updates for all cars uh, are happening from the Belgian Grand Prix onwards. So the other side of the summer break, if you watched any of Ted's analysis over the weekend, you'll know that uh, some teams have been making some interesting uh, design decisions when it comes to where they're putting the planks and the skids and what can actually flex in a bit of a gray zone area for the regulations. Um, so flexi floors, although Christian Horner calls it rubbish, it looks like it has been happening. Um, and uh, for those cars out the front, which is Ferrari and Red Bull, it looks like they've been doing it to enable to have a bit more of an aggressive rake, more control, less stalling underneath the car and less porpoising. So we'll get Campy to explain that in a later episode because um, we'll dive into more technical analysis on that ahead of the restart of the season after the summer break. But uh, Freya, again, as I said, very, very short weekend because of a sprint uh, race weekend. So qualifying Friday uh, and uh, we had free practice one, which was interesting and not interesting Um, for Valtteri Bottas. He was taking a brand new power unit, so it didn't matter what he did uh, over the sprint race or really for qualifying. He was going to be starting at the back of the pack. Uh, But uh, as I mentioned, the very top of the episode, when it came to qualifying, it was very much what we expected from Max Verstappen. It was. I think what was most interesting, though, with with qualifying was just how close the margins were as well. Like I think in Q3 when they actually got to you know, final final lap times, we're talking like 0.008 between second and sixth, like just really, really close margins. So when you start talking about track limits and everything else and the impact that that has when you're talking with such you know, minute kind of um, quantities that really does start to have quite a big impact um, when it comes to those those lap times and ultimately who makes it through to, to Q2 and Q3. But um, I think qualifying was funny because, you know, again, the track limits is probably a shorter list of who didn't get lap times deleted um, during <laughs> during qualifying. But ultimately that that leads to, um, to the conversation about Checo um, and why it took so long for them to dish out his penalties. And, uh, you know, there's a few criticism this weekend floating around uh, when it comes to um, stewards and decisions and all of those types of things. But to me, that's actually one of the biggest ones because other drivers were getting their lap times deleted kind of in situ. And that can change outcomes pretty drastically because, you know, do you have time to go for another lap? No. Okay. That means you don't make it through all of that stuff. Like it, it impacts what happens next. So as much as they penalized it retrospectively, you know, the damage is done in terms of the impact that, that, um, that drive has, has had on qualifying and therefore sprint race and and therefore race. So that to me is actually one of the the biggest issues of kind of, of, of the weekend. And it was interesting because, because Checo and uh, Christian Horner both said like, yeah, fair, he did exceed track limits, but why didn't you call it at the time? Um, That, that was their problem as opposed to whether or not um, there was any question that he had in fact uh, kind of gone outside the limits there. So 
yeah, it kind of went as expected. It's always been a bit of a, a tricky one for them to police consistently. Um, and I think they, they did police it with the exception of that fairly consistently this weekend through qualifying and then for the rest of the weekend. Now the next part is for them to get it right race to race. Uh, I think the the challenge there though is that it varies between tracks so much in terms of things like visibility um, and even time of day. So the sun's in their eyes so that they're, they're not able to see as, as well and, and they're kind of saying that, that was having an impact there. So it's not as it's not as straightforward as it probably sounds to say just apply the same rule consistently, you know, race to race uh, as long as they kind of do it within the weekend then maybe that maybe that is the best that, that they can do in terms of adapting to, to what's going on on that given race. But, uh, yeah, no, not really any surprises for me in terms of qualifying. He said Max was out the front. Um, it's kind of what we expected to happen. Like the race, the, the weekend took off as we expected it conti- to continue. Um, but, but that's when we really started to see that the Ferrari was going to have some some good pace. Yeah, uh, this track limits conversation is an interesting one because I think it's great, to be honest. Uh, and it was heavily police this weekend, much shorter lap, much shorter racetrack, I should say, than a lot of others. Uh, and the white line is the track limit. Um, one of the things I, I find very interesting out of it, though, is it very clearly shows these new Formula One cars are very, very difficult to see out of out the front with, uh, as Martin Brundle put it, the mud guards effectively on the very front uh, inside lines of the cars. <laughs> it's very difficult then to see where you're actually putting that wheel. So it's an interesting one because the white line is the white line that it, you just drive within that. Okay, fair enough. Good point. But if, yes, other environmental factors come into play, it was where you can actually see the car. That's very hard, but also when you're carrying such speed, especially through turn nine, you know, 10 and, and the car is drifting and you're pushing it to the limit and you can't, and you're really finding those extra margins and, and millimeters count when it comes to lap time, as you say that the spread of cars at one point was phenomenally close and, and it's really where you could put it at, at, at sort of hang it out, I suppose, to get that drive off the line coming down the, the final straight, but it's, it's interesting. It was a very interesting race to see all of these track, like black and white flags. I've never seen so many black and white flags in my life. Um, and whether or not it's it's the right the right way to do it in terms of uh, policing every single corner at, at the Austrian Grand Prix versus other tracks, I think that's that opens it up for conversation. But either way, the rules are the rules, so you got to sort of make it make it stick. And, and I suppose if it becomes more of an issue later they'll have to find a way to increase or improve rather visibility of those front wheels so that the drivers can see exactly where it's happening. In saying that, not every driver was suffering from from that issue. So, you know, your Esteban Ocon, you're so tall, you can bloody see everything. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. Like there are some drivers who seemed to really struggle with it and were getting constant warnings and then ultimately penalties. And then there's others who didn't get any um, who you know, for one reason or another, and, and it could come down to to that type of setup, you know, even from a the physiological perspective of what you can see and can't see at your various heights and whatnot. But uh, just from a from a driver's standpoint, there are some who didn't seem to take an issue with it all weekend, didn't have any warnings at all. So, you know, what is allowing them to have better perception of that of that spa- that space um, in comparison to to others? But even some of the the people who did, some drivers who did, kind of you know. Uh, go over you know track limits more frequently weren't necessarily arguing the rules. They were going, well, it's the same for everybody and I did, didn't do it that well. And the other thing is that you don't always win out. So there might be one or two 
corners where actually really pushing the limits um, of the track are beneficial for you. But there's others where you actually lose a bit of time. Um, but we can even think about when it comes to track design, though, for example, and things like that with, in different ways to have it self-regulate, for example, in terms of having gravel in certain areas. So there's just no benefit to actually, you know, pushing pushing the track limits in that way. So there's probably a few different ways I could think about it, get creative when it comes to having that something that self-regulates rather than something that has to then be policed as heavily as it as it was this weekend. But, um, yeah, I think, like I said, for for me, the issue was really was was really in qualifying with, with Checo because I just there's the damage is done, um, and it affects not just him. So that was something which I found frustrating. I think we could probably skip over McLaren's struggles because that seems to be the theme of the year for for Daniel and for Lando. Um, interestingly, though, uh, Ferrari pace was was really up there. I mean, Charles Leclerc qualifying in second. Uh, Carlos Sainz in third. Uh, And more interestingly, other Ferrari power unit cars, Magnussen qualifying in sixth and Mick Schumacher qualifying in seventh. This team has not brought a single upgrade to their car yet. And don't forget, they've had to spend a lot of money on fixing Mick Schumacher's car twice. So the team really seemed to be getting into a good groove, Freya, with this car. And it's almost interesting, isn't it, when... Other teams have started to bring upgrades, not necessarily in the right direction. Maybe there's something to be said for stick to what you know and work out exactly what you need to improve come the summer break so you can work on that and move forward as a team. Yeah, potentially. And they would all be in different situations in terms of how much data they have and things like that in terms of, you know, good long runs you've had like you said with Haas you know mix of we it's very it's very easy to forget about those early races <laughs> they seem so long ago now um you know there would have been a lot of time money spent um repairing his car and and also you know you, you lose lap times in terms of data building building that data and therefore being more confident in what it is that you need to actually improve as well for the for the rest of the season so I'm sure there's a, a, a million and one variables that that help them to, to decide what to bring and when. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting in qualifying to to see both the, the Ferrari-powered vehicles um, um, up there but didn't expect them to necessarily deliver over uh, a race distance. Uh, thought that, you know, the the Red Bulls would, would have more pace ultimately rather than kind of, you know, uh, single lap speed. And then, of course, the other important thing to note in qualifying is Mercedes, both crashing out, both suffering damage on the same side of the car at different parts of the track. Lewis Hamilton suffering into four and uh, George Russell suffering into ten. An interesting interesting time. Um, lots of Dutch fans enjoying them crashing out by all accounts. Uh, that's a completely separate conversation, can I just say, around fans at racetracks and, and the booing and everything else around it. I mean, people will have an opinion about it. Uh, we weren't there, so it's very difficult to say one way or the other, both including the Max Verstappen's crash at Silverstone last year as well as the crash this year. But if it is happening, it's no good because um, these are people's lives, obviously. But from a team point of view, Freya, not one but two cars. Uh, didn't really matter that much for George Russell. It was still good enough to put in a decent time. But for Hamilton, relegated down to ninth, it was no good for him. 
No, and it really sets your team up for a lot of work over the weekend and I think it's just from there it's a recovery drive, right? Like it just changes how you have to go about things. But at the same time what we know about Lewis Hamilton is that, you know, just because he's starting from the, you know, the back end of the grid somewhere or even though, you know, obviously he's only halfway back but when he has started, um, you know, back in kind of 18th, 20th, whatever, just depending on whether he's taking a new power unit or whatever it might be, it doesn't rule him out. You know, he is, he is such a good driver uh, on that front that just because he's been relegated for one reason or another, um, that's not going to rule him out. So it's funny when that, when that, funny when that happened, when that happened, a lot of people saying, oh, you know, well, you know, Mercedes aren't actually that quick this weekend. That's going to be pretty hard work for him in order to keep decent points. I was like, have you have you watched Lewis Hamilton before? Like, <laughs> and, you know, he's on the podium last weekend, so he's got something under, like, in that car that's actually setting him up pretty well. So I wouldn't rule him out. I think more than anything you just feel for the teams in terms of the hours that they would have had to done and had to have done to, to get that car um, not just on the grid for the race but in in good shape and safe for the driver to to get into as well. Well, the sprint qualifying session was shortly after FP2, which I don't think anyone watches over these weekends, especially uh, when it comes to the juice really being in the sprint race slash qualifying. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that now, Freya. The, the very disappointing fact, though, is that Fernando Alonso was sat on his jacks with tie blankets on uh, an electrical issue with the car, means they couldn't get it started. They were lucky enough to trundle it along into the pit lane, um, but they still couldn't get it started. Devastating for him because Alpine seemed to be going strength to strength to strength. Otmar Safnau was asked, what is it about this car? What about these upgrades that Fernando seems to be really leaning into? Because his performances have been fantastic. He hasn't been in the fastest car for a very long time in his career, but he's consistently sniffing out these top six positions, which absolutely belong to Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, generally anyway, uh, and he's always there to sort of snap it up. Uh, devastating for him because a sprint race to, to set the grid for the actual race, he's absolutely going to get in up there and go, right, oh, here you go. That's, I am a wily old campaigner and here <laughs> I come. It's devastating to, to see him uh, not even start at all and be relegated to the very back of the pack. Yeah, it's confusing. And it's confusing as a spectator as well because you don't necessarily have all that information at the time, right? Like we can sit here now and say, oh, this is what's happened. Even then we don't necessarily have all, obviously have all the information or they might not have released everything yet. They might not know yet. But, um, you know, you're sitting there at the time going, uh, why are the tyre blankets still on? Uh, why is the car still in the garage? Okay, you're in the pit lane. Nope, it's not starting. Uh, you just you don't have all of that information, so you're kind of just sitting there speculating and it's it's not easy to watch as a spectator, especially if you are supporting that that driver or team and um, and hoping for, for them to have a successful weekend. So, yeah, that was really frustrating to watch. But, yeah, the sprint race, is it a race also? I'm still confused. I don't know. Like we <laughs> Nobody it? knows. It kept getting? Nobody no one knows. knows. They don't know. But even like – I thought that they might have sorted out their language around that this year. You know, they've Mm. done this a few times now. Um, But I found, what was it? They kept calling it a little race. We've got our little race on Saturday. I was like, I mean, they're still going around corners at a couple of hundred kilometres an hour. It's not really a little race. It's, uh, I don't know, just I find the language around it bizarre and it's confusing um, in terms of, is it is it a race? Uh, <laughs> but um, but there was drama right from the start, like you said, with Alonso, which is frustrating. And um, you know, by all accounts, 
this weekend he could have been considerably higher up there um, in terms of the points that he would have been battling for potentially um, had he not had to to start where he did. And then, of course, we had the Alphas engine issues as well. I'm not really sure what ended up happening there, but he just, Joe just lost, lost power. Lost power, managed to start it again. Uh, what's better than one formation lap, two formation laps, I hear you say? Correct. <laughs> Uh, Joe, Joe is, uh, he says you're welcome to, for that point, but for, for that to happen, but then for him to, I mean, the medical car drove past him thinking, okay, well then he's not going to be involved in this, in this start but for then to him to be trundling, uh, along and at the back is, is a good thing. I mean, at the end of the day, let's not forget that huge crash that he's just had days, days prior, uh, and he's in the car having a good crack again. So I think if, for, from a point of view of, being able to get the car rebuilt, well done, Alfa Romeo. You'd kind of expect some kind of gremlins to be in that thing, considering the absolute knock that it took. So, uh, I was just glad that he was able to get it started again. Disappointing though, because from a uh, from a qualifying point of view, okay, fourteenth, not the best, but certainly better than starting at the very back of the pack, which is where he ended up having to start um, fighting his way through. Passes Seb Vettel, Latifi, Sonoda, Albon, uh, and Gasly to get back to where he should have been. It was an interesting one. But Freya, for me, for the sprint qualifying race, little race, big race, uh, it <laughs> was the battle between Mick Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton and this Haas versus Lewis Hamilton amazing conflict that was happening lap after lap after lap after lap. Kevin was able to, to keep for a little while Mick Schumacher in his DRS, meaning that the Ferrari power unit in terms of power, obviously a lot stronger than Mercedes, able to defend even with DRS for Hamilton. It was beautiful to watch right up into the point where Kevin decided that he'd had enough and was actually just going to go further up the road. And as soon as he lost, as Mick Schumacher lost that DRS, it was uh, it was lunchtime. It wasn't hammer time. It was lunchtime for Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, it was so good to see. I think we've all been hoping for Mick to get opportunities like this to race properly, especially now that he's he's got that car underneath him with a power unit that seems to be doing pretty well. They've had they've had a big lap, bit of bad luck obviously this this season. They had a, you know some strong races that made us all really pleased because we didn't enjoy watching them just struggling at the back um, race after race last year. Uh, so I think really enjoyable to watch and just good to see some of the potential there with Mick. I think we just we just don't get to see enough of it. And now fair to say he has crashed a bit as well. That is why, that's partially why. But um, <laughs> but just great defensive effort um, from, from Mick. But uh, the other thing with that um, kind of battling situation is you also had like VB lurking in the shadows as well, um, just waiting to see what would happen there. And I, I do, I always like watching that now, especially with the 2022 cars, it's quite different because they're all, racing generally speaking a lot a lot closer together where it's often no longer a battle between one and two cars there's three four five um in in the mix um and that's obviously you know it's exciting to watch see what's what's happening up the front but and we'll get to the race in a minute but yeah we had some great moments there where it's not just one or two cars and you're kind of looking to see who's in the background ready to take advantage of an opportunity that might open up depending on what's going on with that little battle in front of them and that was VB there and nothing really came of it but um I'm enjoying watching that this season because we we're not we didn't really have that in the years before but of course it's interesting as well with um with what came out after that with Mick's interview and this is not hmm. something I necessarily expected was he was filthy um he was. with 
with what had happened. And that took me by surprise. I kind of looked back and said, well, wait a second, you just had a, a great battle. But then obviously there was, um, you know, decisions that we, we weren't hearing at the time that he wasn't, wasn't pleased with to, to say the least. But I've been talking about this a bit recently in terms of how drivers present in front of the camera after um, moments like this on track, particularly when it's intra team because that's just seems to be a bit more sensitive. Um, and of course, you know, as we, we discussed last week with, um, with, with Richard Saxby, you know, it's, it's incredibly raw situation when they've just come straight off the track, take the helmet off and they're in front of a camera. But I think it is where you see a big difference with, um, some of the more experienced drivers in terms of how they handle those situations. And you can almost create a, say a kind of direct, um, comparison there between, Ricardo, for example, and uh, and Mick, in terms of you know you're both ultimately in the same position. You you asked to swap. They said no, and if you look at how they both handled that interview afterwards, there is a maturity there um, that that we didn't see from Mick in that moment, and it's pretty consistent when it comes to the more experienced drivers. So it's just a bit of a trend, which um, you know it, it reminds us of the value that the experienced drivers bring to the to the sport as well. Well, for the sprint race, it fell out with Max Verstappen first, Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, George Russell, Sergio Perez, Espen Ocon, Kevin Magnussen, uh, Lewis Hamilton not being able to get past him at the end. Mick Schumacher in ninth, just outside of the points. Points awarded for the top eight, don't forget, in that sprint qualifying small little individual race. Uh, Valtteri Bottas <laughs> lurking in 10th, Lando Norris 11th, Daniel Ricciardo 12th, Lance Stroll 13th, Joe Guanyu 14th, Pierre Gasly behind him with Alex Albon, Yuki Tsunoda, Nick Latifi, Seb Vettel and Fernando Alonso not starting but ending up in 20th. Well, that's uh, the talking about the sprint. Let's talk now, Freya about our team by team analysis, which is brought to you by us again. Uh, support <laughs> the show. If you if you love listening to Lakeside Drive, we really appreciate your support. You can support the show uh, by grabbing a Lakeside Drive tee, hoodie, uh, crew, whatever you feel like wearing. If it doesn't matter what season you're in, there is merchandise to suit you. We ship all over the world um, and all of the funds from that go to supporting this absolutely, well, I'm having a lot of fun doing a Lakeside Drive podcast. We'll get into our team-by-team analysis. Freya, let's start at the very, very back of the pack, which is a very unfortunate and a very spinny boy, which is not really a surprise to anyone that's been watching the sport for quite a while. Sebastian Vettel, 17th for Aston Martin. Lance Stroll in 13th. And before we get into it, uh, I want to read this that happened um, out of the uh, a driver's meeting that happened on the 8th of July at 7.30 local time. It's very important information for you to know. Um, And it's about Sebastian Vettel. The fact is behaviour during the driver's meeting at 7.30 on the 8th of July, it's breach of Article 12.2.1F of the International Sporting Code. 7.6.5ZXY. And Article 20.1 of the FIA Formula 1 Sporting Regulations, a fine of €25,000 suspended basically because Seb got angry during a meeting at whatever was dumb things were being said probably by the FIA and decided to leave and he didn't have permission to leave. He didn't have a teacher's note. He didn't have a hall pass. Do you and think so he has to ask to go no to the bathroom good. as well? He has to, surely. Surely they all do. <laughs> uh, interesting note from this though, Freya, and it's something that uh, we've sort of spoken about a little bit, um, but it's uh, it's interesting that to, to read this in a fine for leaving a meeting. Anyway, drivers are not free to leave when they want. This is being a, this being a breach of the requirement to attend. 
Drivers at this level are role models for every driver around the world and in the opinion of the stewards, Vettel failed to live up to that standard in this case. An absolute hilarious display of the uh, the rules by the FIA, finding someone who picks up rubbish, who is absolutely about trying to increase diversity in the sport. Think about what he did in Saudi Arabia. Think about what he's done in certain parts around the world. He's been the first to bring up issues that happen in races where we're going racing. But no, he is not a leader, Freya. He is a naughty boy for leaving the meeting when the, when the teacher said he couldn't and 25,000 euros. What does that say, though, to drivers when you can get away with petulant behavior on track, you can get away with punting people off, you can get away with swearing in the radio or telling your team to shut up and all that sort of other stuff. But the guy who, Daddy Seb, who we have all come to love, regardless of his spinability, is fined 25,000 or at least a suspended fine of 25,000 euros for clearly being frustrated at something stupid happening in a meeting that he didn't agree with personally and for him leaving. What does that say to this leadership or this potential role model line from the FIA? Yeah, I mean, Seb's spinning spectacular aside. Uh, it's going to be a tricky one for us to really make a, an, a, an informed opinion about because if you go and interview any of the other drivers who were there, um, they're not going to say anything, right? They're going to have each other's back. They're going to say, oh, yeah, look, I think that's an issue between Vettel and the FIA or they'll say, yeah, you know, things are dragging on and, you know, we, we, it's easy to get frustrated in those moments. So I was like, no, no one's going to say exactly what happened and, um, you know, throw Vettel under a bus to the media. So they kind of dish out this fine, say that he's behaved in a, you know, in a way that doesn't show the leadership role that he has as a driver. But we, you're never actually going to find out why. So you either have to trust in what was done, that it was in fact a, you know, display of inappropriate behaviour kind of thing in the way that he might have exited or something like that that was disrespectful to other drivers or something else. But then you also go, well, I'm looking at all the information available in front of me and everything that I know about Seb seems that that's unlikely to be the case. So it's it's a tricky one because we weren't there and no one else is going to tell us what happened. Um, but I think sometimes in moments like that, it's just about flexing in authority really in terms of saying, just a reminder, I can still find you if I think that you have behaved in a certain way. Like it's, it's hard to form an opinion on having, without having been there, but, and, and we'll probably never know, but it seems like a bit of a flex to me. And, you know, in our opinion, you didn't live up to the leadership standards. Well, in my opinion, you failed to enforce track limits in qualifying. So, you know, (laughs) I don't know. It's, It's a bit bizarre. It is very bizarre. And I think it like, this is what they're hanging their hat on when it comes to leadership. I think just saying, Fine for leaving the meeting when you're not supposed to, fine. But for for the additional commentary of you're supposed to be a role model for every driver, why is that suddenly now the the point when for the last couple of years has been displays by all up and down the grid by unsportsmanlike behaviour and really poor form, Seb not doing that and he's the one that's called out for I think it's just ridiculous. But anyway, that just, just ties in, doesn't it, with the FIA. Lance Stroll finishing outside the points in 13th. Um, there wasn't really a, a proper safety car for him to do what he normally does, which is just wait for something to happen further up the grid. Uh, Seb finishing in 17th after having a contact, um, which was absolutely no good, that turn four really taking many, many cars, that gravel trap, 
including, of course, the Red Bull Mercedes spin, uh, which is its favorite thing to do. Mercedes' favorite thing to do is to spin a Red Bull at that corner. Uh, let's just <laughs> ask Alex Albon and Lewis Hamilton. But Aston Martin's still very strange to me, Freya. It just it's strange because I don't understand why they're consistently this far back. Sometimes they have good showings, but you would have thought with at least the the aero upgrades that they've brought and with Seb's driving ability and Lance's ability. And it has to be said, Lance sometimes can really hold on to a, a position and get points to the team. But we're seeing more often than not them getting this far down the grid compared to, which we'll talk about in just a moment, Williams and Alex Albon in 12th, ahead of Lance Stroll, ahead of both Alpha Tauris. There doesn't seem to be this level of momentum carried forward into this season that we thought we would, would see. And I know we spoke about that with Richard Saxby in terms of the great people that they might have at the campus at Aston Martin last week, but it just doesn't seem to be equating to anything on track. No, there's a few teams, to be honest, um, the, the next one is one we will talk about, that it's a bit of a weekend to forget. But when you start saying that too frequently, it's like, well, when are you going to have a weekend that you actually want to remember, um, that you, you know, you're going <laughs> to take away and learn from and and all those things? And uh, it's it's not happening with, with Aston Martin. And, yeah, then to go back to, to those points, like they've, they've been in a huge amount of flux over the last year or so and that does, you know, affect every element that is involved with producing the the products and what we ultimately see on track. And I think that's something that's it's probably easy to forget in terms of what, what, what we see, which is a driver in a car on a track and everything that goes into that. And you think about things like comms teams and internal structures and leadership clarity and management roles and, and role clarity even in, in and of itself. All of these things are things that are going to affect you know, what, what happens on, on track. And so you hope that as, uh, you know, they, they gradually build their campus, which is a word that I really can't stand, uh, for <laughs> the product, like for, for, a, for a business, but I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but yeah, you hope that as all of that comes together and things gradually settle over time, that they start seeing some, some results, but, um, yeah, very disappointing weekend for them. I think which something which is frustrating as well with, with Aston Martin is, Stroll's just general apathy um, after races. You know, when you see the AlphaTauri boys coming out afterwards and they've had a bad weekend or something's gone wrong, they're, they're so frustrated. They want so well to have success. So They want so much to have success and they're so mindful of the team and the hours that people are putting in um, and they are so so motivated to try and do better, even if they are frustrated in the moment. Um, but the general apathy that I find that, that he kind of shows afterwards, I'm finding to be a bit wearing because I think when you when you're not performing, you want to see the, the care in the person who's who's out there racing in terms of wanting to do better, which which you do see from there's passion with Seb still. Um, you know, he's frustrated when they're when they're not doing well, when they get knocked out after Q1. He's like, oh, again, like there's um and and you see it coming through his interviews as well, and that frustrates me. But yeah, the incident down um into turn one. It's interesting with stuff like that, I think, as well, because depending on who you listen to, there's a couple of different angles. You know, one is the classic, he turned in on me. And hmm. the other one is the, well, you've got the inside line. It's your responsibility to make sure that there's enough room um, and then define enough room, right? So not that it's dissimilar to Perez and and George. And to be fair, they were pretty consistent in in how they did kind of assess both of those. But, uh, yeah, not a 
Not a good weekend for Aston Martin. Alpha Tauri, as you say, Pierre Gasly, 15th, Yuki Tsunoda, 16th. They uh, had a bit of a probably a, a harsh discussion, let's just say, or were harsh words potentially used out of Silverstone, uh, a very completely avoidable accident that they both had with Yuki spinning around Pierre Gasly there, of course, as we remember. Uh, but Alpha Tauri, and, and it's interesting that Richard Saxby said this last week as well, that it, they seem to be going in a more different direction from, from Red Bull. Very obvious that that's the case, isn't it, Freya, when they are absolutely flailing down the back. And Pierre Gasly absolutely performed incredibly well last year. There is there is no shadow of any doubt except for in camp he's been. There are a few shadows in there, which I would be concerned about, <laughs> to be honest. But for for him, it's got to be tough. I mean, it's a sign for AlphaTauri again for, for next year. So he's, he's seeing himself through 2023. Um, Sonoda hasn't yet been announced to take that second seat, but it's probably likely noting the, the Honda involvement still. But for a team that was putting in sixth positions last year, that was really getting a stack of points each weekend, thanks to one man more than Yuki Sonoda whilst he was figuring his life out in Pierre Gasly. It's, it's additionally hard to watch, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's all these kinds of conversations around uh, Gasly being swapped into McLaren instead of Ricardo and Ricardo going to AlphaTauri and other people being around. And where does Pierre Gasly go? Well, look, he's very clearly a talented driver, but unfortunately, like Daniel, suffering from a car and Lewis at the beginning of the season and almost Carlos a couple of times early on in the season too, suffering from a car that they just can't get to grips with or just isn't clearly that quick isn't faster than everyone else. And you can have a fast car. None of these cars are slow necessarily, but when upgrades are being brought by other teams that are finding, you know, seven or 10 uh, tenths a second going from race to race or every fortnight or every month, then it's, you're going to struggle. So for, for Pierre Gasly, yeah, he's going to be pissed every bloody weekend when he's not in, in the points fryer. Oh yeah, he's he's not going to be happy with where they are at the moment. Like you said, he you know knocked out of his favourite position of, of six um, uh, across the line, <laughs> which he held pretty strongly last year. And yeah, now that we we kind of you know we have a, maybe a bit more of an understanding as to how that team is going to be managed a bit separately, you you think about the the structures and supports that come with having kind of a force like Red Bull um, in terms of uh, just the organisation side of things. And so you know, is that affecting them in how they are organising themselves for for each weekend? Um, Gasly just. Yeah, it's, it's challenging, right? Because like you said, we've seen him perform. We know that he's a, a good driver. I know that there are people who will beg to differ, <clears throat> campy. But uh, <laughs> at the same time, you know, again, like we like we, like we use, you know, we use this, ex- not excuse, but it's a rationale that we apply to other drivers who have performed pretty well given their machinery. He hasn't forgotten how to drive overnight. Now, this is, you look at other variables. You go, if you just take, the driver out of out of it just for a minute. What are all the other variables at play here? And you go, well, there's obviously you know the car, there's the teammate, there's the management side of things, and there's the organisation. If we know there's going to be change in any any of those, it's going to going to affect them. Now they've got upgrades coming, um, I believe. You know they're on the horizon, and they. I think it's challenging though because that can be this kind of light at the end of the tunnel of, oh, we've got these upgrades coming, coming, but then, you know, do they perform in the way that we expect them to um, and and can we then extract the the best out of those quickly enough in order to try and kind of redeem ourselves and and finish a bit higher, you know, from a constructor's perspective but also individual results this season. Um, so that can be a bit of 
not necessarily false hope, but it, it takes longer than we kind of expect when we know that that teams are, have got developments um, on the on the way. But yeah, they just overall they really lacked pace this weekend from from start to finish. And what was interesting is that. Uh, I think it might have been Sonoda who said, you know, there's there's nothing in the data to really explain why this weekend was so difficult. So they've probably got a bit of work to do to go and do some problem solving. So as upgrades, Williams seem to be figuring out theirs pretty well. It was unfortunate, of course, Alex Albon uh, being taken out in the first, not even at the first corner. He couldn't get, get that far uh, at the Silverstone circuit, but uh, he managed to qualify uh, pretty well in, in 11th spot uh, from the sprint point of view. Uh, he was down in 16th, but he ended up finishing in 12th. Now, Latifi having a DNF, but uh, Williams are able to salvage a lot of the upgrades that they brought to Alex's car for this uh, for this position uh, in the race calendar. Now, it's very clear they're going down the Red Bull design philosophy as well. Alex Albon, well, he's a Red Bull driver still. He's on loan to Red Bull. But one of the things I think that's interesting, and I think we can probably, although there's some other rumours now around where Oscar Piastri is going, but for, from what I understand, Oscar Piastri will be driving Williams next year and I think the announcement will be happening sooner rather than later, but maybe Williams are just giving Nick Latifi a bit of breathing room before that happens, which would be absolutely fair enough if Jos Capito is doing that. Either way, regardless of who's got the other car, Williams have hit the reset button, haven't they, Freya, last year? They've sold. Dalton Capital have come in. Jos Capito's come in. There's been an absolute massive shift in a good direction, I think, for this team. And what we're seeing now for Williams is what we saw with McLaren under Zach Brown's rejuvenation, I suppose, of, of that team, of that business. And they're on the up, which is good news. Alex Albon is a is a talented driver. I mean, it's interesting thinking about AlphaTauri going back to where Toro Rosso was a couple of years ago, and you think of Brendan Hartley, unfortunately, suffering at the very back of the pack too, not necessarily because of his driving, but because of the car that was underneath him. But for for Alex Albon to be part of the Williams story and help bring them towards the front, I think is a good thing. Uh, it's obviously very important, Freya, for both of these cars then to get these upgrades and to be going in this in this better direction. But have we started to see now, in your from your point of view, have we started to see the step by step gains that Williams have needed to make to really drag themselves away from being right at the very back by a massive distance every race weekend? Well, I think the kind of it goes back to the conversation we were having a bit earlier, whereby any decision that's made when it comes to the organisation, but then also development, um, takes time to have an effect. So you might put a new team principal in, you might have a buyout, you might take a different direction in terms of design. All of these different decisions take time to actually affect what then happens on track. And I think that what we are seeing now is, you know, those all of those decisions that have been made over the last, you know, 18 months to two years really um, start to, you know, this is the outcome of that. And are they battling for podiums? No, but they are making constant progress in the right direction. And I think that is the the outcome of all of those decisions kind of, you know, they've, they've been good ones for the most part. Um, and they've managed a lot of that change quite well by the sounds of things in terms of um, managing George out of the team, managing Albon into the team. All of those things seem to have been done with pretty little kind of 
chaos, I suppose. You know, there's, there can be a lot of drama when you have driver driver movement and that type of thing, whereas they all seem to have have managed those those pretty well from a Williams perspective. So, yeah, I think for them this weekend, um, like you said, for, for Albon, it was a great opportunity for them to actually get data on those on those upgrades um, because of what happened last weekend. Um, and despite some kind of tricky incidents with him, you know, he made contact with Seb in the sprint race and then he had the penalty for pushing Norris off track uh, as well. Um, he still seemed pretty happy with the overall outcome. Like he seemed, he does seem to do a good job of kind of stepping back and looking at the whole weekend and saying, this happened, this happened, but overall this is where we're at and I'm pretty happy with that. We can be optimistic and I, I certainly um look forward to kind of hearing from him after races. He just, you know, he's, he's optimistic. He's um, insightful. He's, he doesn't play, he never plays a, a blame game. He'll, he'll often kind of say, you know, this was my experience or this is what I thought happened. You know, I thought that was a racing incident or I thought this, but you know, they're the ones who are assessing these situations. Like he's just a very reasonable person to, to hear from, which, um, which I think, you know, there is a level of maturity there for for somebody who has been, you know, out of the spotlight for, for a little while and, and now is well and truly back in it. Um, I think Latifi, that's oh, a hard one, right? Like it's without knowing exactly what's going to happen next for him, you just hope that he's going to get some, you know, enjoyable races in if it is does turn out to be his his last season uh, with with Williams and this weekend wasn't one of them. Um, I think he had some floor damage earlier in the race, uh, which then would have made the car very, very difficult to drive. We saw the same thing with, with Max last week, but he doesn't have, you know, the the pace that, that Max does. So, you know, with that damage, it's in their best interests just to try and, you know, save the, save the power unit and, and retire the car. So I hope that's not the luck that he has for his remaining races. Well, he's certainly goatee to many of us here at Lakeside yeah. Drive. And for Alex Albon, similarly to Joe Guan Yu, for recovering so quickly from his massive shunt to get back in and be happy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good point, Freya, in terms of his maturity. Uh, and he is one of the younger guys on the grid too. So it's good to see it can still happen. Alfa Romeo, Valtteri Bottas in 11th. Joe Guan Yu, as I just mentioned, uh, back for this weekend in 14th. Not a bad showing for Alfa Romeo, just outside the points of both of them though. Valtteri Bottas, as you mentioned, Freya, was lurking at a couple of points through the race. Joe did a great job uh, to get past as many drivers as he could to get that 14th position though. But uh, for Alfa Romeo, yeah, probably a weekend to forget if we're going to use that terminology for them. Uh, it's not been a very particularly good circuit for Alfa Romeo previously as well. You think of Giovinazzi and, and um, Kim Raikkonen's uh, results here, not that great. Uh, so for them, I'm supposing they're wanting to really just get get everything focused again, recover properly from Silverstone. Now they've got another race under their belt. Both cars finished at least. No massive problems, although, as I mentioned, Valtteri Potas starting the very back because of a new power unit. Um, so to fight his way up to 11th is, is good news for him. Uh, but for, for him, he still looks happy. Regardless of where he is on the grid, he's still a much happier VB fryer than he was in any of the previous couple of years. Yeah, he, he is, although I think we, we just certainly saw some frustration from him this weekend, which is natural as well. I think overall, um, yeah, they, they're, they were in a tricky position. I think they overall just seemed to lack pace though, really. They weren't particularly great through the corners. Um, I think they'll be pretty frustrated to not have scored points, but then they weren't in a great position to really achieve that from the start. And as much as uh, Joe kind of, you know, <laughs> 
you can be medically recovered physiologically, but there's so much more to how an incident like last week will have affected him. Now, I'm not saying that that will have affected his race necessarily this weekend. He started on hards and just struggled there for a long time. I think, you know, a lot of teams struggled with tyre management and he seemed to be to be one of those. Um, but I just wouldn't underestimate um, the effect that something like last week would have on your mindset Um both immediately and, and and long term, and it's very impressive that he raced this weekend. I think sometimes not having the downtime is actually a good thing. Um, you know, you, you kind of it does force you to just get back into it and not over overthink certain things. Um, you know, kind of pr- can actually help to expedite recovery, so to speak. Um, but you know the effect of something like last week is is not just just physiological and um I know it's a cutthroat sport and everything else but personally I'd be cutting him a bit of slack over the next little while while he pulls himself together which he frankly did exceptionally well um it's just a tough race for them McLaren ended up with both cars in the points is not something we were expecting at all. Daniel Ricciardo in ninth, Lando Norris in seventh. Uh, Lando was able to have some battles, Freya, but not for the length that we've seen. He, I mean, he's been well, he's done pretty well, hasn't he, at the Red Bull Ring in previous years. His first podium was uh, third uh, in the first race in 2020 um, in that double header. So McLaren generally have been pretty good for for this this racetrack. Very limited running, issues with Daniel Ricciardo's DRS. To be honest, they have to be absolutely stoked with the 7th and ninth. both cars in the points. Uh, rubbish performance really all around for the team. Andreas Seidel still not blaming either of the drivers but trying to figure out exactly what's happening with this team. And, and let's not forget Andreas being the team principal. It is his responsibility to make sure things are going in the right direction. That includes drivers in which seat, what the future holds and everything else. So I think... It's important to just listen to him and his press conferences because he is the fountain of McLaren Formula One knowledge in that space. But yeah, double points finished for McLaren. It's a good thing. Uh, DR, those seem to have some frustration. At one point, uh, after Michael Italiano showed him something on a on a screen, he he, well, he flicked it off. <laughs> Gave the bird to the screen. I don't know what was on the screen. But something happened. Um, very very frustrating for him. You can see though he's deflated. Uh, let's hope uh, the, the the next couple of races are good for him, but also Landon Norris. Let's not forget. I mean, he is outperforming Daniel Ricciardo in this car. There is absolutely no question of that. But the fact that he couldn't really fight for a very long time uh, those those Haas cars shows that McLaren's pace really. I mean, the fact that Haas are faster than them that says a lot, doesn't it? It does, and I think like there's, oh, there's there's so much going on here with this team. And if you just look at this weekend, just for a minute. Go. You've had brake issues in qualifying, DRS issues with Daniel, power unit issues, issues as it turned out as well. It's just it's one thing after another, and yes, absolutely for them to walk away with both of them in the points is kind of miraculous in a certain way. Um, but and yes, Lando outperforming Daniel, but it's not he's not dominating him, you know. And and even last week, like he did he did do well in um, in Silverstone, but. I would question whether he was ever really up there um, with the pace and ability to to battle it out with with the top top three, um, in in particular. So you know, yes, he's doing better th- 
than, than Daniel is currently, especially when you look at the season as a whole. Um, but, you know, this is not a, a whitewash by by any means. Um, I think it uh, was, yeah, something that just from a technical perspective I go back and kind of go you know, one problem after another and just in terms of how they're looking at the car, you have some questions there in terms of are they trying to solve one problem at a time rather than look at the whole thing um, holistically um, in terms of having all of those teams working together. I don't know. We know that has been a bit of a kind of secret to other teams when they've seen struggling to figure out what's going on with the car. Um, interviews with various team principals have kind of said, well, we really have to look at the whole thing together and what we had been doing was looking at one problem at a time and not necessarily thinking about how they all connect, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, who knows? Um, looking ahead to France, that they they, were, they did well there last year, so hopefully it's a track that they, they're looking forward to going back to and we see them both in the points again. I think that's really all we can be expecting of them at the moment um, and, and if they're both finishing the points given the potential of the the car at the moment, it's probably the best we can do. I think it was, it's, I think the sprint races are interesting for them as well. Like Daniel seems to actually quite like them in that he says, you know, you kind of get there and it's immediately meaningful and there's kind of less stuffing around, but then it's also more exhausting. So I think they're good, but then you have to think about how they sit within the broader season um, and that type of thing. So having a break after them is, is important. Um, but yeah, even how you feel about different tracks and that type of thing, but they, can affect you, but um, you know they they did all right here. I think it was fifth and sixth in France last year. So hopefully we could see that again. And Daniel got an absolutely amazing start. He was ahead of Lando going to one and had to get on the brakes because otherwise he would have collected Lewis Hamilton, which gave him a, uh, a flat spot in his front left, which meant he was struggling. And then on the back foot almost immediately from there, which is why Lando was able to get up the road a little bit more from him too. So as you say, I think there's a whole bunch of things all happening all at the same time. Uh, yes, with Daniel Ricciardo biased. Imagine that says it on the tin of the podcast, uh, but can also agree that he's struggling this season. Um, but I think it's, as you say, it's an important note to to remind us that the team acknowledges that the team is struggling this season too. There have been performances where Lando has, yes, spanked Daniel. There has been performances where Daniel has spanked Lando. This is the uh, this is Formula One. There's going to be some tracks which some drivers prefer over others. There's good luck. There's bad luck. It just doesn't seem for either driver here in the McLaren fold that they can get any good luck so far this season, apart from Imler, of course, where Lando was able to get on the podium, which was which was good for him. Haas, though, seemed to be the opposite. No upgrades are the best upgrades. Gunter Steiner having a best time, um, not looking like a pack of wankers, looking like a pack of legends. Mick Schumacher <laughs> in sixth, Kevin Magnussen in eighth. Lots of points for Haas, no upgrades. How good. So good. It was so good. I really enjoyed watching them this weekend. I think, like I said, the interview with Mick was an interesting one. Um, turns out, you know, maybe that's it. You just need to get him a little bit angry and then you really start seeing him perform uh, in a race because he was he was pretty salty uh, in terms of how the sprint had gone. So, you know, that that can give you a bit of fire sometimes. So maybe that's the the motivation that, that he needed. But and obviously, you know, it was exciting to watch the battles up the front at, at moments, but the midfield um, racing this weekend mm. was so much more enjoyable. You know, we had, mentioning earlier, three, four, five cars kind of in any given battle. I think at one point we had a Haas, McLaren, an Alpine, an Alpha, and then the other Haas all going through, um, what was it? Was it turn three maybe? And it was just exceptional viewing. Absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, so points again for Mick, which is great. Um, I think K-Mag had a, an engine issue 
throughout actually. So the fact that he finished where he did is actually pretty impressive. And then I think Mick as well got um, driver of the day, which is is really exciting for him. You know, people actually recognising that he has raced well um, and, and kind of acknowledging that it gives you a sense of feeling valued by everybody watching races as well. So I think they'll be walking away um, pretty high this weekend. Yeah, one of the things that was outstanding to me was how he was defending Lewis Hamilton in both the sprint and in the actual race itself. The way he was placing that car, Freya, phenomenal, like just absolutely perfect. He wasn't pushing off. uh, He wasn't squeezing out, although he was accused of doing that by Lando. Uh, He was... In that instance, he was retaking the racing line. But specifically, the the uh, fight with Lewis Hamilton I want to talk about is, especially going down to turn four, just placing that car in such a way that no matter where Lewis was from there, his exit would be compromised and Mick would stay ahead. So I think for him, that's fantastic. The, the interesting thing is, of course, he fought with a previous world champion this weekend. The previous weekend, he's fought with the current world champion and his mentor is the previous world champion that's on the grid uh, racing them. So he's he's getting a bit of spice in his driving. I'm here for it. The, the, he is super lovely. There is some phenomenal footage of his sister. Um, he's halfway through an interview, I think, with Sky Sports F1 Germany, and his sister comes out with a bottle of champagne and just coats both the interviewer yeah, and Mick in it because he was in points. I love that. I love that up and down the grid we can celebrate those those victories and, of course, the Schumacher family being an amazing name in that, but his sister being incredibly proud of him too, uh, that that just made me very happy. So here for Haas content, um, either Kevin Magnussen or, or Mick Schumacher, we, I think they deserve it. Alpine. I mean, Alonso came in 10th. He got points at the very end of it, considering he started right at the very back of the pack. He was fighting around fifth there at one point on very old tyres compared to those around him. And Esteban Ocon in fifth. I mean, Alpine absolutely doing wonders with this car. They brought big upgrades to the car in Silverstone, uh, Otmar was saying, and really uh, Fernando is able now to get in more into a groove. Fernando is saying this is some of the best driving he's ever done in his entire life. It's a good thing for them. And they're out by themselves. They're their own engine manufacturer. They're their own team. They don't have a sister team. They don't have anything else. So all of this improvement they're making is all thanks to themselves. Some very talented people in that garage as well. It's it's good to see. And, of course, I mean, it's as hard as it is that we could say, oh, we wish Daniel would have stayed at Renault slash Alpine. Would have meant Fernando Alonso wouldn't have come back to the sport because uh, he's allergic to McLaren. Um, at least now he is. Uh, and so <laughs> it's good to see that Alpine are doing so well, Freya. It is. And I think um, I've been talking about this a lot recently in terms of how you feel about different drivers, different teams and, and their outcomes and how – your thoughts on one affects a thought on another. And we talked about this um, after it was Baku, I think it was, we were saying it's not that we're anti-Leclerc, it's just that we really love Carlos. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) you know, how you feel about one driver affects how you feel about another. How I felt about Ricardo leaving Renault affected how I felt about Alpine. I kind of was like, I don't, well, I don't want you to be successful anymore. (laughs) You know, and and, and it it affected how, you know, how motivated you were to, to see them succeed. Um, but as you said, the the key is in the mustard and the mustard is Fernando Alonso. And he is just <laughs> like bringing me so much joy. He has twinkle in his eye after every race. He is loving being there. And, again, this is that comparison between kind of apathy towards racing and 
and loving what he is doing um, and being encouraging of his teammate as well um, and being so supportive for him both as a racer in terms of helping him defend. We saw that last year and uh, and then and then you know off the track as well, um, supporting him in terms of of being a great teammate. So I'm actually really now enjoying um, mm. watching the success that they're having. And I didn't think that I would ever say that I'm actually really excited about Ocon next weekend, or not next weekend, but when, when we get to France, we go, he's just had his 100th GP that he did uh, this weekend. He finished in fifth, you know, great um, points for him. Um, and he's going to a home race. He's got his own grandstand um, and he's going to carry the momentum from this. And he was stoked after this race um, and t- take that into his home mm. race. So I hope that he has a good weekend um, in France because, again, he's someone who seems to be really enjoying racing and and he's also performing with that car. So I think it would be interesting if you had um, him not being there to carry to carry points when you have something like what happened to Alonso in terms of, you know, now taking his fifth power unit for the season um, and then having some issues with his tyres. Um, I think he said he had um, vibrations in his second set of tyres when they changed him under the virtual safety car. So he then immediately had to stop again, which then dropped him back to P10. And again, as we talk about with all teams, when something like that happens to one driver, the next one has to be there and mm. um, be able to, to score those points, which which Ocon did. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I was surprisingly pleased um, for the fact that they were both in the points and um, and I'm looking forward to hopefully Ocon having a good race when he gets to, to France and being able to celebrate. Lewis Hamilton on the podium again in third for Mercedes, George Russell in fourth, picking up the pieces of retiring Red Bulls and Ferraris, as they should do. Uh, interesting that the the discussion has changed for now about the luck that Hamilton is having versus George Russell. This is his second, third podium, third step on the podium in a row, second race, I should say. So it's a good, it's a good result for them. <laughs> oh, geez, I'm just going to oh, forget about it. Give up, move on. Uh, and George Russell being happy to be able to be in fourth and picking up some points too. I think. This is a team that's really working itself out again, really trying to get back towards the front of the grid. Interestingly, talking to some people yesterday about it, when it comes to Lewis Hamilton, there was a lot of dislike that it was same, same Hamilton podium, can't believe it, uh, last year, year before, year before, year before, year before, year before that, year before that, the year before. That guy's been in the sport a long time, hasn't he? But for this race and certainly the previous race, we're almost happy to see him on the podium because he's had to work for it. The car is not the fastest on the grid. Uh, and it means that he has to pick up the pieces and have some good scraps. And he did. Both of these Mercedes cars, Freya, had good scraps up and down the grid. Well, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head in the fact that he's working for it now. And I think we do get bored of there being any dominating performance from a given team or driver. We just we, we get bored of it. And it was no fun when you got to a point of the season saying, you know, will Max or Lewis win today? Like just show me what's going on in six to 10, because that's way more interesting. Uh, it's, it's not boring and sorry. Yeah. It's not boring kind of further down, down the field. And there you do start getting to that, that feeling of like, well, one of you is going to win. And if I'm not a you know, supporter of that individual, then I don't really care that much. Um, whereas I think you do, you do approach that and you feel differently when you feel like they're, they're having to work for it. And the other thing I would say is that uh, their success or Hamilton's kind of success over the last couple of races shows that the team is actually developing in that 
I think you, you, you were kind of joined their journey a bit this year, um, whereby they, they came out, they, they weren't as fast. Um, and we were kind of with them every week going, Oh, I wonder if they'll be able to, you know, whatever Lewis is testing this weekend. I wonder if that will work. Okay. Well, that wing that you had in, in Canada seemed to be effective. Now you've both got it. You kind of, I don't know, we've been on some sort of journey with them, which we haven't been previously because they were just Lewis in particular was just dominating. Um, whereas there's a bit more of a narrative there now, which is perhaps a bit more relatable and, um, and it's been interesting to see. So you feel a bit differently about the outcomes. I think for both of them, really they were epic recovery drives. Um, and I do wonder if Russell at this point will start maybe feeling a little bit, uh, envious or, or frustrated or jealous even, um, seeing Lewis edging ahead um, and, and now having had two podiums whereas, you know, Mr Fifth Place um, is kind of hovering around there consistently. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine that's probably going to be a little bit frustrating for him and, and he'll be wanting some silverware of his own pretty soon. Red Bull and Ferrari, two DNFs, a first and a second. Carlos Sainz suffering plan E as engine explode <laughs> mode. Uh, terrifying to watch Freya, oh, Ferrari, that Ferrari roll down the hill. Um, here's a hot tip. Here, uh, Campy's not here, so I'll give you a hot tip. If you're a marshal <laughs> and your job is to have a fire extinguisher and run towards a car if it's on fire, don't put the fire extinguisher down and then walk the other direction whilst the camera angle is still on you. I know you're probably doing something else, but it's a very bad look where the car is rolling down the hill on fire, Carlos can't get out because if he gets out, well, I, I would, just would have been terrifying for him. Um, but trying to stop the car rolling back onto the track whilst on fire and causing further damage to that Ferrari. But there's this shot of old mate just putting a fire extinguisher down and walking the other direction. Luckily, someone else was there with uh, a wheel chock that almost didn't seem fit to, for the task to stop that rolling car whilst on fire. Terrifying for him. But, I mean, that aside, Freya, the, the bad luck for him seems to continue. It's a story of his season, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's what he said, right? He kind of goes, well, it's fitting. <laughs> um, you know, as soon as I get to some momentum, something else happens and he just doesn't seem to be able to have that continue. It's, again, when you're watching races, depending on who you're watching them with, can change your experience quite significantly. And we did watch um, today's race, um, you know, out out for breakfast um, with a lot of people because it's, of course, 8 o'clock in the morning for our time. And you just see the shock on everybody's faces and that genuine mm all of a sudden the mood just shifts. It goes from the, oh, no, you know, power unit's gone. Like, everyone's, and you've got Red Bull fans cheering and then all of a sudden they see the flames and nobody was was cheering. It was this, what are you doing? Move faster. Like, what? why are you putting the fire extinguisher down? Just get out. Everyone's kind of yelling at this screen and because they held the shot as well, which surprised me a little bit. As soon as you get the, those flames um, came out, it kind of surprised me that they they that they kept that shot live. Um, but, yeah, the the feeling in the room just com- completely changes and, you know, it was only a few seconds there in comparison to other incidents where it's taken a lot longer to extract a, a driver from the car. But as soon as there's fire, that's just so scary. Um, and obviously we all have flashbacks to to Grosjean. But just – and it was the, the added element of the car rolling down a hill and, yeah, just awful to watch. So – 
pleased to say the least that that he's all right. Um, and then when you talk about it from a racing perspective, it's just so unfortunate. That should have been a one-two and he should have been back on the podium. Um, but it wasn't to be. I think Leclerc, though, on the other hand, you know, um, he, he just drove exceptionally well today. Uh, he did so. He must have, I think he overtook Verstappen three times. Um, and it was just every time Verstappen was kind of there, he would just he just kept going. Um, and there was a move he did earlier in the piece, kind of lap, lap 12-ish, um, and he did that, that overtake on Verstappen and you just go, that's that's a move you see other people lock up so much and he kind of comes, comes down the inside and just it was just in complete control. Um, and so I, I really enjoy, enjoyed watching him him race today. Um, but, yeah, certainly wasn't reveling in um, in the outcome for, for science. It's it's so disappointing. Turn four seems to be the most interesting corner at this circuit. Signs yeah. pulling off there. Perez being punted by George Russell there. That's Mercedes <laughs> on Rebel Crime that happens quite often on that corner. Um Charles Leclerc diving under brakes, catching Max Verstappen off guard into turn four. So it's it's quite an eventful turn for both Red Bull and Ferrari. For Sergio Perez, uh, managing to keep it going and not getting stranded in the gravel, of course, was was good from him. Good to see that uh, he was able to c- continue for a little bit. I mean, massive hole in the side of the car. They had to retire the car and, and a lot of issues. I mean, he was lapped by his teammate in lap nine. Um, and yeah. uh, that sort of ties you up for the rest of the race when – when that's happening. So no wonder they decided to retire the car. But, yeah, for Charlotte Clare, geez, he then had his own issue, didn't he? With the, the throttle, the little spring in the throttle, something had got into there, which was, I mean, I've never heard someone come over the radio and saying uh, downshifts denied and yeah. sounds like <laughs> Computer says know, a, no. diehard, a diehard movie <gasps> that's coming out next year. Um, downshifts denied this summer. <laughs> but for, for him it would have been like, well, hang on a second, what's going on with the car? I've just seen Carlos's car popcorn explode and you know and pull off to the side and would have seen flames or replay or something at some point being told by the team uh and so of course you start figuring out that something else is wrong with your car for that to be the issue of course on the last lap we saw max was massively chasing him down if there was another lap to go i think max would have got him again because of the issues that he had but for i was just glad at least one of the ferraris was able to get across the line in one piece definitely and I think the other thing for Leclerc in those last couple of laps, I mean, first of all, when he said there's something wrong with my throttle, they're like, no, no, we can't see anything. It's fine. Sure enough, less than a lap later. Uh, yeah, that's not working. Um, and But then you think about the from a driver's perspective, you have so many inputs at any given time in terms of information that's coming in and then what you need to then do in terms of make adjustments, do this, do that, that are happening you know, every second of the race to then add to that in terms of saying, okay, now just, you know, pull the pedal back with your foot and then do this and then do that. You're kind of adding to that, just that mental load or that cognitive load um, of all of that information that's coming in and everything else that you're having to do. And then you add something like that to it. Um, That's, you know, that's, that's complex stuff just in terms of your neurological processing. So it is genuinely impressive that he even held on for it held on to it for as long as he did. But um, as you said, another couple of laps in it and I think Max Max would have got him. But the other thing with the Ferraris this weekend was in the sprint race and they're, they're battling um, very early on. Now I think mm. what was interesting is that, you know, Max had so much pace there that I don't actually think it that made that much of a difference and there was some questions of saying, well, if those two weren't racing each other, um, you know, they Max wouldn't have quite as much of an advantage. I'm like, well, he would have had that anyway. But 
I enjoyed watching them race and I would like to see McLaren's doing the same thing. Um, and, you know, Mick got to race uh, K-Mag in earnest today. Um, you know, we know that he was frustrating. He was frustrated yesterday. But you've got other teams who are kind of managing this and, um, yeah, I just I just kind of wonder at moment, at times, you know, what what stops them from from letting them race? You know, just saying you you are racing. Don't crash. You're racing though. Um, and the Ferraris found their their limit to that yesterday. And you know, ultimately, one person comes out of that move um, ahead of the other, and and they go from there. So, and I really like it was it was great to watch. And ultimately, they'll say, okay, well, you know, my tires are done now, so I'm settling in third. But um, that that was really exciting too. So I enjoyed seeing that. Well, that's our team-by-team team analysis done and dusted for the Austrian Grand Prix. Let's now look to our fantasy team name competition. Don't forget, you can join this at any time. It doesn't matter about the, the point scoring. I'm not just saying that because I'm doing terribly. Uh, we're looking for the best team name win some Lakeside Drive merch at the end of the year. Freya, here are my selections for maximum giggles ahead of the French Grand Prix. Hold my Red Bull, that's plan E for explode, Trent K. White Line Fever, Steen N. The Petulant Child, Kate M. Um, Forget yeah. Four World Drivers Championships. Vettel knows how to chuck a doughy, Gemma C. Thank you for being so Australian with that. Chuck a doughy. If anyone overseas knows how to what that's talking about, they're well played to you. Yeah, what is clean racing, Tara G? Papa Alonso, Alonso finger wag, which we didn't mention, Freya, that uh, when Fernando had time to put a wheel on the grass and also tell off another yeah. driver by <laughs> wagging his finger. Oh, unbelievable. Samuel R, well done. Plan E, explode. Dennis O, again, that sounds like another diehard. Plan E, explode. Uh, Austria, Australia, tomato, tomato. Kelly W, fair enough. Uh, F1 brand wheel chocks. <laughs> Jonathan C, very good. Ferrari plan E engine failure, LBS. There's a lot of these, I like it. Austria, wow. Well, then, g'day, mate. Oh, wrong one. Daniel B, <laughs> no upgrades are best upgrades. Michael S, yeah, damn right. Haas agree with that. What are McLaren playing at? It's just a conversation for another time, Dylan C. Good question. Five second penalty for not being British. Nicholas H, good point. Patrols are better than cruisers, Campy. Jason C says, well, Campy can retort to that later. And the hills are alive with the sound of track limits. Haley H, very, very well good done, team. Hayley. Thank That's you so much, the 155 <laughs> of you as part of that. But it is now time to end the episode of the French Grand Prix in a couple of weeks' time. Next week, we will preview the French Grand Prix and we'll try and get Campy to dissect some more of these flexi floor technical regulations. You know I love talking about body parts on a car and how they're flexing or not, if you remember the flexi wing from last year. But Freya, a big thank you to you for your contribution this week. Don't forget, you can join our Discord at any time. Join over 300 people. There's a brilliant community there. You can all have different opinions. You can all be Daniel Ricciardo biased or not. It's all up to you, but it's a nice, respectful community to do that. It is time, though, to say goodbye for now, and we'll see you next week for our French Grand Prix preview. Where we'll all be blinded by the stripes. (laughs) I'm blinded by the stripes. Sure. Sports Social Podcast Network.